Hey, Breakthrough listeners, it's Jason Lowe and Peter Lount from episode number 107. At Ascendant Financial, mybankersvault.com, we specialize in teaching real estate investors across Canada the process of becoming your own banker, the infinite banking concept. Do you also find it frustrating when it's difficult to access the financing you need or when the housing market moves against you? And when there's unexpected prolonged vacancy or expensive repairs, are you tired of transferring all that money away from you? We have the solution at mybankersvault.com. By becoming your own banker, anything that you are already doing financially, including real estate investing, is radically improved. Whether utilizing this process for down payments or for entire real estate purchases, becoming your own banker puts you in a position to control the repayment schedule on your loans while enhancing your overall returns. Whether you are brand new to real estate or a seasoned investor, we believe that ready access to money and financial control should be in your hands not the banks or a loan officer. We have an exclusive and irresistible package for Breakthrough Podcast listeners. If you want the best way to build and deploy capital, easier access to money, better returns, and less headaches, head on over to mybankersvault.com. That's mybankersvault.com. Hey guys, Omar Khan here with Beta Trading Co. I wanted to tell you about episode 124 of the Breakthrough Podcast. We currently have a special offer for Breakthrough Podcast listeners. We're offering a free one-hour live training session where we show how to instantly add stock options as a new income stream. Now, I've used this myself personally over the years to create a sizable real estate portfolio for myself, and there's no reason you can't as well. The cool thing is it only takes about 30 minutes a day, so if you have a job, or if you have a business, or you're just spending a lot of time with your family, you're going to have time to incorporate this in your life if you take the time to learn this, okay? Now... We're also offering a 15-minute free consultation to discuss how our option strategy can work with your current investment strategy and really take your investment to the next level, okay? So for more information, check out 30minutesstocktrader.com forward slash breakthrough to join us on our free live training, our next webinar. Remember again, episode 124, where Sandy and I go over exactly how I use this strategy to acquire a large real estate portfolio for myself, and there's no reason why you can't as well. See you there, guys. Talk soon. If you're looking for the skills and tools to succeed in real estate investing, you've come to the right place. This show is about breaking through barriers, breaking through limiting beliefs, and breaking through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. This is the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Rob Brake and Sandy McKay. Super pumped to be back again for another uh, another really awesome interview here today that we have for you. Um, just uh, just uh, another great day for real estate investing in general. And uh, with me again, as usual, Sandy McKay. Sandy, how's it going? Hey, I'm awesome. I mean, I'm I'm not as awesome as you. I don't have the sunny backdrop and the beautiful pool, but I'm I'm doing great. Loving loving living in Canada still. Right on, right on. That's good. That's good. What do you got going on? What's exciting and new with you? Exciting and new. Um, I think I mentioned last show we'd be we'd maybe talk about some of our recent purchases. Can't really can't really talk about it yet, but we're working on a nice forty-five unit acquisition that it, that sh- hopefully by next show should be done, and I can talk more about it. Uh, that's probably our most exciting thing. Um, we just bought a sixplex in London. That's kind of exciting. I've never. It's our first actual deal there that we've done personally uh so that's kind of cool we're exploring a different market for ourselves there which we haven't done in a while um we've been kind of really doing a lot in hamilton and um now uh, built up 
better version of a, of a team there to help support a, what we're doing. And uh, so that's not closed yet, but we're, we're firm on that. So it'll close in the next month or so. So that'll be exciting. We can talk about that at some point. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Good for yeah. you. Congratulations on expanding out. Like I know, I know you do a ton of stuff in uh, Hamilton, so it's not like you're, you're, uh, you're just sitting there doing nothing, but you know, I guess the whole idea is now you've bought everything there. So now you need to expand outside. I guess so. I was just, just, you know, the opportunity came up and it was, it was uh, something we've been thinking about doing for a while is we've been looking at London a bit more and, um, you know, just another, another diversity, I guess, a little bit into some new markets and changing things up, but we still love Hamilton. That's still where we spend most of our time and most of mm-hmm. our investments, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. got to get into, uh, you know, Peterborough or something next out your way or out where it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're still doing, we're still doing business out there. Still yeah. trucking right along. Uh, things are going well. But, uh, and there's been a lot of people interested in what we're doing down here too in Costa Rica. We're in Granacaste province, which is sort of the northwest uh, section of the country and uh, had a bunch of people reach out to me. I'm still getting everything in place as far as uh, starting to work down here, but that is coming along. I got another meeting this afternoon, so we'll see how that goes. It's more just about getting, uh, getting all of the requirements in place, right? To be able to go forward and, and and actually start working here. But we will be uh, in some way or another sharing um, interesting properties starting very soon. So we're still doing our, our Peterborough property tours. We've got one this weekend, uh, which is Ju- uh, June 24 or June 26. Today's June 20, whatever. Anyway, June 26, we've got a, uh, a Peterborough property tour and we are doing them every two weeks. So eventually we will start to integrate the, uh, the Costa Rica properties in there too. But for I'm now, more excited about, I'm more excited about that then. Forget Peterborough. Let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> All right, Peterborough is a moneymaker. You know, if you, if you yeah. like the, the thing about here is you got to have the cash, right? You got to have the cash yeah. or we've got to find something that uh, where the uh, sellers open to a, a vendor take back mortgage or something like that. Right. Or some yeah. other creative financing. There's no, it's very, very difficult to get a, uh, a mortgage here, traditional mortgage. Yeah. So, so if you're looking for, I guess, less capital invested and uh, more traditional investments, then Peterborough is still a, a great place, especially with those student rentals. We're still going strong with the student rentals. Schools starting nice. to open back up this, this coming year and stuff like that. So it's going along well. Um, everyone should remember to go over to our website, breakthroughreipodcast.ca. There they can listen to all of the 140 some odd episodes that we've done so far and, uh, and, and, and communicate with all of our guests that we've had on the show. They can also pick up our free gift. Yeah, the ultimate strategy for building wealth through real estate. And uh, when they do that, they will join our list so they never miss out on a show and get everything that we're up to. Property tours, like you said, all that sort of stuff. Probably learn a little bit more about what you're doing in Costa Rica as we go along here. And um yeah, just never miss yeah. out on the action. So go join that. You get a nice free gift and you won't miss out. Go over, of course, and leave us a rating review on iTunes if you haven't done that. You know we're super appreciative of everyone that has left the ratings and reviews. Pretty easy to go over. Just uh, Even if you've got some suggestions of people that you want to have on the show, maybe some topics that we haven't covered, whatever it is, just let us know how you feel and uh, go over there on iTunes and leave us the rating and reviews. Awesome. That's about it, right, Sandy? That's it. That's it. I think uh, we've got our, our great guest lined up here standing by. I'd love to bring him on. Let's bring on Amar Beg. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks for being here with us, Amar. Glad to be here. 
So MR is a high volume home flipper. He's currently got over 20 simultaneous flip projects on the go across southwestern Ontario. Acquired over 50 properties in the last year. His new goal is flipping 100 homes in the next 12 months. So really cool, exciting goal series. He's establishing a professional network over a dozen years, uh, or he's been establishing a professional network over a dozen years as a successful realtor. NMR and his team are well-equipped to find, acquire, close, renovate, and resell or hold a wide variety of properties. And several months out of the year, he travels with his wife, his five children, um, acquiring, renovating, selling properties virtually from all over the world, which he's uh, living proof of that right now as he's coming to us from uh, also beautiful Costa Rica. <laughs> Yeah, not far. Yeah, from where man, we're that's that's amazing. Uh, we we glazed over it, but twenty simultaneous flip uh, projects going on right now. That's incredible. And five kids. Like, do you sleep or do you get to enjoy Costa Rica, or does the rest of your family just they're at the beach? And you say, see you when you get back. Pretty much. Sometimes if I got to take a, they're surfing and I'm on the phone. <laughs> It's awesome. Well, thanks for being here with us today. Um, you know, as usual, let's just start out with you know what got you into real estate. Why did you get into real estate? Why? So uh, that question of why gets tossed around a lot. And I mean, uh, I think it's a it's a pretty big question. And I think, uh, you know, the easy answer to it, the fast answer to it is why not? But I mean, since we've got a, a pretty long podcast here, I guess I could dig into it a little bit deeper. For me, I, I think why, I guess, uh, is two parts. I think the one why is why real estate. The other why is, you know, why, why even have a drive to do more, I guess, right? And, uh, you know, it's a real estate podcast, so I guess I'll answer the why real estate first. Um, I started off in sales. Uh, you know, I started selling when I was eight, nine years old. We started selling chocolate bars in front of stores. We sold clothes out of our trunks. We sold, we sold anything we could. Uh, I worked at a lot of call centers throughout high school, uh, after high school. Uh, I went to university, and I just wanted to keep selling. And the biggest thing you could sell was real estate. So I got my real estate license when I was 18 years old. Uh, I did my first deal when I was 19 years old in real estate. At that time, obviously, it was really tough because, you know, who's going to trust a 19-year-old with their real estate purchase? But I was still able to kind of chug along and get some deals done. Uh, so from then, I've just been really passionate about real estate. And, you know, fast forward several years later, once I got some real good traction with, uh, with you know, helping people buy and sell real estate, we, uh, me and my brothers, me and my two brothers, we... Uh, we were selling real estate. We became uh, a top team across our Remax offices. Uh, out of seven branches, we were the top team in the office. I had my best year in real estate, and uh, the next year I stopped selling real estate. So, you know, for me, I lost kind of that drive of helping people buy and sell real estate just because, you know, if you're selling that much real estate, you, it's a lot of work. You've got to put in a lot of hours. Uh, it takes a lot of time. It's hard to really leverage that. So, uh, I got into real estate investing. And so that passion of real estate stayed. I still wanted to do more. And I kind of transferred that into real estate investing and started flipping homes. So why real estate? It's, it's uh, obviously an asset that, that uh, is, is there for, for your life. Uh, real estate investing is uh, something, a strong foundation that you can build off of. And, you know, anything else you want to do from there, it can, you know, real estate can make it happen. So uh, I think I'll always be a real estate investor. I want to do more in real estate. And I guess that leads on to the, the next why, which is, you know, why want to do more? I really can't answer that question, I guess, just because I think it's always been programmed in there. So it's just something that I guess comes natural. It's not like I have certain goals that I want to hit or, you know, once I reach a certain number, I'm just going to slow down or not look into new things. You know, if I'm flipping real estate, doesn't mean I want to, you know, just do that. I, I want to look at, I want to do rent to owns. I want to hold properties. I want to acquire more doors uh, that are long-term. 
uh, get into vacation rentals, uh, rental arbitrage. There's, there's so many things that I want to keep on going just because that's just how I'm programmed, I guess. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of people that, uh, that are driven to constantly do more can it kind of attest to that, that, you know, it's hard to really come up with an answer as to why keep going. Well, let's change the question up a little bit then. So you were selling real estate and then there was some kind of a light bulb. There was a switch. There was a, there was a moment where you said, wait a minute, instead of selling this real estate, instead of helping people buy it, I, I should be buying it. So wh where did that transition happen? What was the, the aha moment or the light bulb that went off there? Maybe that's a little bit better of a question. Yeah, I mean, uh, so with, I guess, uh, going back to when I was helping people buy and sell real estate, I think we got a re we got a lot of traction and we got uh, we saw a lot of success from offering you know rental management. So essentially, we would uh, you know walk into somebody's home when we're doing a CMA, but we wouldn't we wouldn't really uh, pitch or present it as a traditional real estate agent would. We wouldn't go in there and say, "Hey, this is your home. This is how much it's worth on the market, and this is how I can sell it." It was more, "This is your home. You have an opportunity now to be an investor." You can invest ten thousand dollars into your home, and from that ten thousand, you're going to get a fifty thousand return. So we would actually help people flip their homes, and we wouldn't actually charge a premium for it. That ten thousand would go directly to the contractors. We would just charge a regular commission. So essentially, I was helping people flip their homes for free. And after a while, I realized that hey, you know what? If I do this for myself, uh, I can actually, you know, uh, kind of reap the the rewards of doing that. And I, I was already equipped with contractors, with you know mortgage brokers, with all of the resources that were necessary, or most of the resources that were necessary to do that, uh, or so I thought. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges, and you have to keep growing and, and building a network. But uh, I was pretty well equipped to go ahead and, and start flipping homes myself. Um, and I was introduced to a uh, a channel of real estate deals through off-market sources, which, as a traditional agent, I really didn't know existed. And so I guess being exposed to uh, you know, off-market real estate, you know, wholesalers, uh, motivated sellers, that whole side of things uh, just kind of opened up a whole new avenue of capitalizing on those resources and those teams that were already established over several years and just kind of put two and two together and started picking up properties and never looked back. So whereabouts have you been purchasing properties? Is it all across Ontario? Is it outside of that as well? Or what's your, do you have a focused location? So, I mean, uh, for me, like when I started, obviously, I, I like to build on momentum and I wanted to keep going. And, and uh, the first deal I was introduced to was in Woodstock, Ontario. So right out of the gate, I was already open to doing deals that were further out and uh, and, you know, either traveling or, or getting local resources to help tackle those. So right now we buy anywhere from Windsor to Ottawa to St. Catharines to, you know, north of Gravenhurst, Huntsville, uh, Owen Sound, uh, just just up to the north, I'd say all the way up to even we'd be open to going all the way up to North Bay. So pretty much the entire, you know, Golden Horseshoe, Southwestern Ontario. So it's, uh, and, and it's virtual. So we're buying a lot of property sight unseen. We're, we're, we're yeah. trying to do it virtually. Uh, so, so what type of properties does that include? Is that, is that anything and everything? Is it uh, single family homes? What type of, when people hear flipping, I think generally they think of th single family homes, but what type of properties do you invest for? And, and what are you looking for when you're, when you're looking yeah. at and assessing these properties? So primarily our business does consist of uh, primarily single family homes. We're not afraid of uh, properties that were built in, you know, the late 1800s or, 
you know, old stone foundations and all sorts of uh, plumbing, electrical foundation type of issues. We've kind of seen and dealt with everything and there is a solution for, for pretty much everything. So we're not afraid of uh, properties that really need a, a lot of work. So I wouldn't say there's anything specific in terms of whether we prefer, you know, two story versus bungalows or a certain age, or we try not to limit ourselves. And, and that's really the purpose of casting such a wide geographic net is because we want deal flow. So in order to establish deal flow, we don't want to be too picky. You know, we want, we want to just take on anything that's a really good deal and wherever it is. So how do you find the team right. in these locations too? Are you able to have them, are they, are they all local? Are they different, different, like contractors, I guess, primarily is going to be part of that challenge I would foresee, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, you always got to pivot. You always got to try, try new things. So, you know, if you asked me this question when I first started, I probably would have told you, hey, this is how it's going to work. And it just doesn't work that way. You know, you can you can hire local resources for certain things, but there's an inherent risk with trying someone local um, that, you know, you're just working with for the first time. And a lot of times in these smaller areas, it's hard to find dependable people. There's a, a huge shortage of trades in uh, rural communities. And you really feel it when you're trying to find someone because you'll find someone that you think should be pretty easy to line up. And, you know, in that local area, they're, they're, they're charging you way more and they're booking you two, three months out. Whereas you get somebody from Toronto, it's, a, it's you're, you're better off trying to convince somebody to commute. So I guess it naturally progressed from, you know, having a project that's far away. First, it was, you know, use some of your resources that are willing to travel and then try to fill in the blanks with uh, local resources. Then it moved to, okay, try to find full teams of local resources. And now we're kind of a traveling circus. So we've got contractors who are, you know, on the program, they understand what we do. They have teams that are from the get-go, uh, it's established that, you know, this is a traveling position. So the trades are literally going up there. We're, we're getting the motel rooms, hotel rooms. They're staying up there for a couple of weeks, few weeks until the job is done. Uh, it seems like it's, you know, wasteful to pay for, for rooms and things like that, but, but it's, it's, it's actually the most efficient way to get it done. And you know what, there's also, there's also a big difference between being open to all types of houses and ages of houses and that kind of thing. And actually finding deals that work like with the numbers for flipping, right? Cause that's like, if you've got that many going on, how, how do you manage to find so many that the numbers work all, all, all at once? Yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes to be honest with you, uh, we roll the dice and, and, uh, you know, sometimes the numbers technically on paper may not work and, you know, I don't want to be naive and say, hey, you know, we analyzed it and we had some sort of vision that nobody else could see. You know, some deals, I think we got lucky because of the market as well. Um, you know, the market was going up at the same time. I think we're really going to be tested when it's no longer a seller's market. And now we've acquired properties and we're, we're kind of seeing prices either stagnate or, or go down a little bit. How, how are our, our uh, you know, disciplines and methods and SOPs going to hold up? And our criteria for buying, how is that going to hold up and, and, and you know, uh, face those tougher times, I guess you could say, right? And, and then we can really say, hey, we're, we're doing something right, as opposed to, you know, right now there is always that thing in the back of my mind that, hey, you know what, this deal was great, but was it great because of something I did or was it great because of the market, right? So, I mean, I think, you know, just because we don't have that strict buying criteria, we'll buy any type of property, doesn't mean we'll take anything. Right. So we do fully understand what type of things can pop up and what those things may cost on a project. And really, it's just about working it into the numbers. So if you have enough deal flow, you can 
you can afford to just lose the deal and say, hey, look, you know what? I'll take the deal, but 30 grand less because I don't know what it is, but I'm probably going to have another 20, 30 grand of expenses on this project. So, you know, I don't feel comfortable paying 200 for it, but I'll do the deal at 170. And if the price is reduced to that point, you can really absorb any of those issues that, uh, that, that would come up. And then it's a deal and, and you just push forward with out of, uh, you know, let's say out of a, a group of 10 deals you're going to do, how, how much I'm, exp- I'm guessing that, you know, you say some of them you're rolling the dice with and you're not really sure how it's going to play out. I'm guessing there must be deals where you actually do lose some money, some deals where you maybe make a bit or not so much. And then, and then the odd home run that you just kill it. And maybe it's a bit luck. Maybe it was just a great buy. How does that, how does that kind of, you know, out of 10 deals, what, what would the breakdown be in terms of Let's talk average returns? I mean, it's, it's tough to give this answer because I don't want to let it get to my head, right? I don't want to get too complacent, I guess you could say. But out of the 60 properties we flipped last year, we only lost money on one. And that one, we bought it for 770 and sold it for 990 So we should have made money on it, but it was in Toronto. You have a lot of closing costs, higher price points, so capital is more expensive. It was right when the condo market kind of tanked a little bit right at the beginning of COVID. So mm-hmm. we took those hits. Otherwise, we should have sold for just over a million and we would have made, you know, we wouldn't have made that much, maybe 30, 40 grand or something, but it could have easily been a profitable deal. Um, so, I mean, that one has an asterisk on the loss, but otherwise it's it's really only that one property that we've lost money on. We've never really lost money on, it, on anything else. Do you find, you find you're making like small amounts on most of them? And and like, I know, I, I feel like if I'm looking at that and you, as long as you don't go really, really hit a big loss, you're going to be pretty good just making a bit here and there, a bit here and there. And then, and then all of a sudden a huge home run will pop in every now and then, right? Yeah, I mean, and I'm prepared for that. Some of the deals that we pick up, I, I say, hey, you know what? It has the potential to be a, a great deal, uh, but I'm willing to take a loss on it. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly willing to do that. It just never really comes. And I think, like I said, I think that's more because of the market. Uh, we're getting lucky in, in, in that case, I think, right now. Otherwise, I probably should have taken a deal on a couple, of, uh, a loss on a couple of these deals. But uh, for the most part, I think it's been the opposite direction where we thought, hey, you know, this is going to be a twenty or $30,000 gain on, on this flip. And, you know, we have a lot of six-figure flips where we're making over 100K on one deal. Well, that's what I find it's tough with, uh, you know, even a newer flipper or someone doing, looking to do their first one or they're only looking to do one. I mean, the odds of the one-off hitting a home run is pretty slim. You know, it's tough at scale. It's probably a little easier almost, I would think. Obviously not easier. There's tons of different things at play, but to make the numbers work and the math work at scale probably starts to get a little more consistent. Yeah, or more importantly, as a business or as, as a person, I guess you can keep your hair because you're not going to be stressed out about the performance of that one flip. Yeah. You know, I look at some of my properties where, you know, things have popped up and this and that. And like I said, I probably still won't lose money. But if that was my only flip, I, I'd, be, I'd be super nervous. I'd be stressed out for sure. Mm-hmm. So we haven't quite gotten to it yet, though. Um, we've talked about a lot of interesting things, but how do you find so many deals that work? So a deal flow, I mean, uh, I, I think, like I said, the, the, the initial part of it is positioning yourself. So because we're casting a wide net, we're putting in the resources that uh, you need to have in place to be able to uh, both flip virtually as well as, you know, uh, flip in, in a wide area. We have that in place. We have all of the back end in place in terms of ability to handle projects. So we've got a lot of JV partners that we have established relationships with. We've got a lot of uh, money lenders that we've got uh, established relationships with. The administrative team, uh, our operations team, our lawyers, everybody's 
you know, ready and at the helm to to pretty much close on deals that we that we take on. So that first part is all about positioning, so we can at least handle those deals if we do get them. And then it's creating deal flow. So deal flow, we're in touch with a lot of the wholesalers. We worked with a lot of them uh, that are that are in these markets. We do a lot of marketing ourselves. We've got an acquisition team. So it's a combination of you know directly getting deals from these sellers as well as you know, buying properties from wholesalers and, and other off-market sellers. We rarely buy properties off MLS. You know, out of the 60 last year, one was from MLS. That was the house in Cambridge that the seller actually had it listed on MLS, but they reached out to us directly. So it was kind of on MLS, but kind of wasn't. But otherwise, everything's off-market. And, you know, like I said, it's just it's just increasing that deal flow through networking and direct marketing to these sellers. Has it always been that way, a lot off market, or has it been more on market in a in a slower period, like where the you know you're not getting twenty offers on every single listing out there, right? I mean, the market in the last year or two years has been extremely hot, but in the in a different market, has that that percentage changed of what you're finding offline off market versus on? So the entire time I've been flipping uh, in the past couple of years, it's it's been a seller's market. So I haven't necessarily exp- and I guess that one point last year where it kind of turned into a buyer's market maybe March, April, or whenever that was, uh, no, there was a lot of uncertainty. Nobody really knew what was going on. Um, at the same time, we kind of tightened up, which was a mistake. We kind of tightened up our criteria as well in terms of what we were acquiring because there was so much uncertainty. So that, I guess, would have been an opportunity where we could have bought properties on MLS. And if the market does shift to a buyer's market, I'll throw out uh, as many you know, lowball offers in a day as uh, as you can count, right? I mean, I think that it would be a great opportunity to buy properties off of MLS. And I've, I've been a realtor in those buyer markets, so I understand that, you know, what what I'd be looking for. And uh, I'd just be wasting time if I was looking for that in, in this market right now on MLS, right? Yeah, asking a realtor to go throw around some, you know, 70% uh, of what they're asking Type offers is going to be pretty, pretty time wasteful at this point. It, al- it always baffles me that there's so many private sellers in a market like this, though. And they like, I mean, it's it's definitely to their detriment. But you know, it is what it is. Um, okay, so you know, you mentioned having access to uh, to private money and that kind of thing. But how how do you manage then to finance all of these flips? And this kind of just reminded your question just reminded me of that commercial on CP24 where you know they're they're panning across the the family room in the kitchen and the guy says we've got a beautiful family this and that and people ask me how I do this and then he just says we don't <laughs> you know we we don't really get by and 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 really I think I feel like that sometimes just because we are financing everything we're funding everything but our cost of capital is high right so a lot of people that uh, might have cheaper resources or cost of capital they'd be looking at me and saying, you're crazy. Why are you paying so much for your money to do these deals? I just look at it as it comes with the territory. If you want to do a high volume, you want to have very limited underwriting, you want to be able to pull the trigger on a really good deal um, and say, I'll close in four days, then your cost of capital is going to be expensive. And so that's always a work in progress. I'm always looking for cheaper capital. I'm always looking for uh, better, better types of financing. Um, but what we've got in place right now really works because we can, if I get 10 deals tomorrow, I can close every single one of them. Right. Um, so it's, it's really, I guess for, for someone that, uh, you know, if I was answering this question for someone who maybe was worried that they won't have enough capital to do a deal, I would say, you know, get the deal first and then just be willing to pay whatever it takes to, to get it up. 
you know, maybe know those numbers ahead of time. And same thing with buying properties that need a lot of work. You want to make sure that there's room in the budget to be able to afford it. And as long as that's the case, you can do the deal. Now, are you financing the deal and renovations, all that kind of through a, a private money partner or, or lender of some sort? Or are you covering out of pocket a lot of those costs uh, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, we've got uh, like I, I don't really take a lot of money out of the business. So essentially, we're reinvesting all the time and we're building more and more equity. And so sometimes we need to, you know, bring on a JV partner for rentals or, uh, you know, get more money from private uh, lenders, things like that. But a lot of times now it's, it's we're reinvesting our own capital um, as well. So then uh, in, in a JV scenario, you're giving up an equity portion typically or are they and then in a you know, just straight lending sort of scenario would be more. Is that like a is that a, a, the same lender all the time? Is it a bunch of different ones? Um, what, what are the kind of scenarios that, that happen there? We've got a we've got a bunch of different ones. Uh, sometimes we do give up equity. Uh, we don't like giving up equity, but uh, as a percentage, you know, sometimes we'll cover, you know, 100 percent of the capital required on a project and we'll give someone 25 percent, maybe 30 percent of the profit. So it's uh, it's reasonable. It's fair for everyone. I, I actually like when we give our JV partners, you know, 20 percent on their money in 90 days or 100 days. Again, it's super expensive, but, you know, it's a, a cost of doing business. It makes it so that our cash on cash return is infinite and uh and our lender makes money which which we're which is really important to us you know a lot, a lot of these people are people that uh you know we have a relationship with that we want to work with for a really long time and to see them make money and reinvest it and compound it is, is a great feeling as well right and then they're itching to do it again with you right so we're ready to go so let's talk about some of the challenges that you've had what, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered along the way i'd say some of the biggest challenges were really to do with the actual uh, flip itself. So having a wide variety of projects um, in, in such a large area with you know limited resources and then bringing on new resources that weren't performing as you wanted them to and just spinning wheels in that direction and having projects take longer than they should have um, was a big challenge. I mean, uh, the good part again, I wasn't stressed because um, because we know that these deals are profitable. The project can handle a lot more uh, cost of carry if it needs to. The market's going up at the same time. So technically, you know, carrying these properties is actually just an investment that we're getting a return on. Um, but essentially, that has been a big challenge is, is getting work done, um, you know, on time, on budget, uh, high quality. And, and if you can get those three key components right on the flip, then, you know, you're, uh, everything is going to plan. But obviously, you know, if you have one or two projects, you can do that with so many at the same time. It's, it's kind of difficult. Is your, is your model right now that you're doing, you know, having all these flips at once, is that something you're planning to stick with? Are you scaling up to do more and more and more? Uh, is, is there a sweet spot with that at all? Or is there like just the more the better type thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I don't remember what movie it was. I think it was Wolf of Wall Street or something like that. And the guy asked him, he said, hey, what's your number? You know, how much do you want to make? What's your number? And the guy just said more. Right. And uh, I think I think that's how, kind of how I look at it is, is that, uh, you know, I look at the flips as a, a bucket in terms of, you know, multiple revenue streams that you could have within real estate. And we want to kind of continue to increase the size of that bucket as much as possible. And, you know, we've got teams that we're building on there. So we've got a, a designer in house. We've got operations team. We've got um, everything else, like the entire team. And, and, you know, if we need to do more, I'd hire a, a junior designer for a designer. We would keep increasing capacity as much as we could. We would keep increasing 
our geographic scope and we continue to increase um, you know deal flow and as that happens naturally we're going to continue to do more deals simultaneously as well as on an annual and monthly basis what does that what, what, what does the team look like like the in-house team can you fill us in a little bit about what that is who's in-house for outsourcing and, and a bit about the model you have going yeah, I mean, and uh, so in-house we've got, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. I've got uh, my, my hands and my legs, uh, you know, uh, Julianne, who's our property, uh, who's our operations manager, Jules. So she basically deals with a lot. She wears a lot of different hats. She puts out a lot of flyers. She helps, uh, you know, take care of a lot of the day-to-day -day functions and um, to help get deals closed, to help carry on with renos, any support that contractors need. Uh, you know, accounts payable, account receivable, bookkeeping, all of that. So she takes care of a lot of those things. Uh, we are getting her an assistant now as well because she's just pretty overwhelmed. Uh, we've got a designer in-house who basically, you know, will design, come up with scope, deal with contractors, uh, things that source materials, which is a big one, um, especially now. There's a lot of work that goes into sourcing materials. You have to, you know, pull from different areas to, to get things done. Um, so she, she tackles a lot of that. And myself, I mean, everybody else is, you can say that they're outsourced or, or subcontracted, but, you know, like a couple of our big teams of contractors, they work pretty much exclusively for us. They don't really take outside jobs. And so it's not really different um, if they, you know, the only difference is that they invoice us and we don't pay them on, on payroll. But um, otherwise, yeah, we've got about eight teams of contractors that are out there. And then we've got additional teams that, uh, that we bring on as needed. Um, or ideally we, we kind of let a project sit idle a little bit so we can juggle around these same teams um, as opposed to bringing on new ones and, and risk uh, uh, you know, the negative effects of that. So when you say that you travel several months a year with your family, what, what are you talking about? Like how often are you actually in Ontario? Um, I mean, every year is different, but uh, so last year I was gone uh, for, I think, four and a half or five months. Uh, the year before that, I was gone for three months, I'd say. And this year I'll be gone for at least three months. This isn't including like the shorter trips, right? So I'll take shorter trips here and there, whether it's, you know, Greece or BC or wherever for a week, 10 days or two weeks type of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, with the internet nowadays, with WhatsApp, with, uh, you know, as long as I'm connected, um, I'd be doing the same thing I'm doing at home and, and really like having projects that are across southwestern Ontario, um, it's, it's actually more of a detriment to do site visits. When, when I do site visits, those are the days when I really fall behind uh, because by the time I get back and I'm able to do something, I have a whole backlog of items that I would have dealt with already if I was really just at my desk connected to the internet, putting out those fires as they came, um, as opposed to, you know, driving for six hours or eight hours to see two properties, right? which I already had my eyes on because I have constant, you know, video and, and photo footage and constant feedback from the people that are on site. Do you ever see it? What would be, it seems like there's no, you know, I, I often, I've been selling real estate like to people virtually for a while, like ever since I started, I feel like as a realtor six, seven years ago now, I guess. Um, now it's even more than ever. Like, I don't know why, once you get a certain comfort level, it's, there's really no point in going to see it. You almost maybe talk yourself out of some deals sometimes by going to see it where you should have just taken action and done a deal, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'd say the effects of it are uh, net, it's, it's a net negative, I guess, right? It's time, I don't right? Want, yeah, yeah, I don't wanna say every property, some properties, it's like, I wish I had seen this beforehand, right? But uh, 
but but I think the net effect of going to visit properties is negative. You talk yourself out of deals all the time, where, whereas it's really not an issue, um, especially when you're buying from motivated sellers. We're buying properties that, you know, to the eye, to the nose, to the senses is very unappealing. Um, but really, I know from flipping virtually, I can ignore all of that, all of those senses, because it's really two days of demo, three days of demo, a few bins, and, you know, now those senses are not going to be triggered as much as they would have if you were there. So uh, sometimes it's better, you know, ignorance is bliss, I guess. Sometimes it's better not to smell it, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and just uh, let, the, let the demo team do what they do. Now, is someone, is someone on your team uh, going to see these, or is it fully like you, you're getting a, a few screenshots or something from the wholesaler, or is anybody vetting them like in person, or is it just fully virtually? Yeah, I was curious of his answer there. I, I, uh, I, 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 I find this absolutely amazing, to be honest. Like, just for, for, I mean, I guess that's the whole thing about having, you know, a wide net, like he was saying, right? Because mm -hmm. to find even 20 deals that, that makes sense all at the same time, it just, that's mind-blowing to me. So, you know, I'm very impressed with what he's doing. Uh, and, and obviously, there's smart risk involved, right? So he's got it to the point now where he can look at something and sort of make a smart risk assessment on it. Is it going to be worth the amount that, um, geez, it almost even sounds like he's not even doing that. It's like whatever deals come, they make them work. There's probably, maybe we should talk when we get him back about possibly some key uh, types of renovation, some certain things that sort of add the bang. That yeah, you know, con con conversions versus just simple rent, simple cosmetics, you know, things like that, right? I think there's probably, probably a bit of everything, a bit of all of that, I would imagine. But, uh, but there is a lot more complexities that come in with that permits, city stuff, right? Things like that that can right. That like can make, what scale can does up. he go to? What, you know, what yeah. level is he renovating them to? I guess it probably depends on market, but maybe let's yeah. just take a minute here and try and get them back. Well, it looks like we got him back here, so let's get him back in. And, okay, uh, and there we go. While you were gone there, we were just talking about, um, uh, we're, we're curious about the level that you renovate to. Like, what kind of things do you do to deliver more of a bang, I guess, right, for the people that are, are looking to buy these properties? Because it almost sounds like, obviously, you do some analyzing, but I think the key is sort of you're making the offer that you – know is going to work and if the offer gets accepted you're buying it right so now yeah. you've got a the, you've you've obviously got some type of a system but it probably depends on where you are like what what area you're in um to what level you would renovate to so tell us a bit about that right so i mean uh so the type of renovation or the style of finishes um we would choose based on the area so anything from you know vinyl flooring throughout to using a higher end hardwood or engineered hardwood, um, you know, the material and the cost of those materials would obviously depend on which project could handle it. But starting from the beginning, I guess, you know, once we close on the property and we really get in there and analyze the exact scope, we would work closely with the local realtors to determine um, some possible outcomes. And sometimes in some cases, depending on how the market is and the type of property and the scope of work that's required, um, the demo and the junk removal and all of that is is a is a reno in itself so we might get a team out there for several days you know we've done up to even you know 10 bins of just garbage junk removal not even demo just junk removal in some in some properties 
And that in itself raises the value to a certain price point. So sometimes it's good enough to just have a demo team go in there, clean out team, remove all the junk, clean it up, and relist it, you know, handyman special as is, where is. Uh, because we know that if we're going to do the reno, it's going to take X amount of time. It'll take um, X amount of resources to do that. And it might just be better for us to not risk a change in the market as well and just sell it as is, where is. But for the most part, if we are getting into it, uh, we, I think, I think when I first started this, I would have thought that we would be doing a lot more like lipstick type rentals but we don't do a lot of those. Once you get into it, you end up doing a full rental on a lot of these older properties that need work. Um, I am a strong believer that if you're going to do something, you should do it consistently throughout the house. It's, you know, you can't just go in and paint because once you paint, now all of the baseboards, trimmed doors look like crap because now only the paint is fresh. So you've got to, you know, you've got to do everything kind of consistently throughout. And so if we are getting into a rental, we're likely doing a full rental and uh, you know, that doesn't mean going down to the studs. Sometimes if we've got lap and plaster, we've, uh, we've done all sorts of things. We've laminated drywall on top. We've, you know, repaired. But sometimes you don't have a choice. You have to do a full gut, reframe, back framing, everything. You got to do the works, right? Um, so it's, it's hard to say. We don't really have, you know, standard finishes. We don't have uh, a standard protocol when it comes to, hey, this is exactly what we're doing because every project is so different. Um, also, with it, having a designer on the team, she really, you know, uh, I guess speaks to the house to find out, you know, what what kind of house would be best suited uh, for this area, for this type of buyer. And, you know, we try to make the home seem a little bit different or or, uh, uh, or unique, I guess. Are you guys ever changing the use? Are you adding basement suites or anything like that? No, I mean, uh, the couple of times we've done it, we've just really, uh, we haven't really, you know, officially added like a legal secondary dwelling unit. We've just maybe added a second in-law suite downstairs with, or maybe even sometimes just rough-ins and we'll, we'll market it the same, right? We'll market it out there when we sell the property that, hey, there's rough-ins in the basement for a second kitchen. And I just find that, you know, if let's say adding a basement apartment, I would have got 50 grand more if it was legal by me adding the rough-ins and showcasing that there's a separate entrance and doing all of those things, I'm getting that extra 40 anyways from most buyers and they can go on and legalize it and do all of those things. What it would cost me to go that extra mile is all I would get back in, in, in a return anyways. So to take additional time to do that, to run the risks of you know the fire department, the inspectors, all those guys coming in to make sure that it's fully legal, it just adds another element of risk for me. Um, if I was holding it, then I would go through the whole legalization process and it would be worthwhile for me. But I think uh, for me, I don't see that additional return being worthwhile. So I just, I showcase it in a way where look, this is turnkey. You could easily legalize this secondary unit downstairs and somebody's going to pay me most of what they would have paid me if it was already a legal unit. Makes sense to me. Uh, time is time is huge for this stuff, right? You know, getting in and out quick is important. I imagine with, with you said, somewhat costly money. Yeah. Do you have a typical turnaround time on these? Um, and uh, and also I'm curious, are you using like, is it cookie cutter material that's like the same across the board? Is it a little different by the depending on the markets or what's available? Um, What's that stuff look like? Yeah, so everything is uh, definitely not cookie cutter. I mean, I think when we started, we were kind of doing that where we were trying to standardize things, but I, I, I found that, hey, you know, uh, going the extra mile and having the designer and, and you know, choosing uh, things that don't necessarily cost more, but they're unique, uh, goes a long way and, and it adds a lot of value to the projects in the end. So um, we don't go cookie cutter, we go with uh, a unique theme or style for these properties. Um, 
and uh, we find that that works. Uh, it's a little bit more rewarding as well for us to see something, you know, that's not the same. Then we can actually showcase a property and look at it and, and feel good about it to say, hey, you know what, we created this um, and we've kind of designed this to what it is today. And sorry, what was the first part of your question? It was oh, just timing. Yeah, how 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 quickly are you? typically getting in and out of these projects is it three months a year six months what's the yes so our quickest project i think from the day we closed to cleaning it up and this wasn't a full rental uh to cleaning it up and then listing it for sale and then selling it and then waiting till closing was 32 days um our quickest full rental from closing to getting in there fully renovated listing it on the market waiting for closing and then closing was 75 days um, on average, I we have a, we have a, a couple of projects that took around a year, just over a year, and that's because you know we started without a permit, we got hit with permits, uh, when at a time where the building department wasn't accepting any permit applications, um, anything you could think of uh, on a couple of these projects we got hit with, and those took just over a year. Um, but I'd say on average we had about maybe from you know full rental to uh, to closed and exited. About 120 days or so, 130 days maybe. Uh, and then, yeah, because you're listing them, and that's always a wild card too. How long does that take? And and I guess that depends market to market as well, for sure, right? What is it, you don't have a sweet spot in price point. It kind of seems like anything from as cheap as possible to is there a, like a ceiling where it's like oh, that's like two million or something. That's just that's just too much to take as a risk. No, I mean I, I just bought one for 1.5 up in Sudbury, which is more of an income property. But I mean, for yeah, the 1.5 in part, Sudbury, yeah, that's a I guess if it's a nickel, yeah, it has yeah, like a mix of commercial. Yeah, it's a um, But I'd say for the single-family homes, I think we cap out usually around you know just shy of a million, maybe eight, nine hundred thousand. Beyond that, you know, the costs get high, the risk gets higher because as a percentage, if we're off the mark, then obviously we could lose the shirt off our back really quickly. Uh, but our sweet spot, I'd say, is when ARV is somewhere around four hundred thousand. You know, ideally we can pick it up for, you know, around the mid 200s and ARV is 400 or low 200s and ARV is, you know, mid to high 300s. Those are great properties for us. We rarely have any issues or surprises um, because as a percentage, even if we're off the mark, it's it's all fine. It's, it's pretty easy to absorb. Right on, right on. Okay, so let's talk about big plans for the future. What are your big plans for the future? You, 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 you sound like... And I think Sandy mentioned in the uh, intro that you're going to be trying to flip a hundred properties next year. Right. And I think uh, at this point already this year, we've already hit kind of a rolling 30 days where we, you know, uh, where we've hit that over a hundred. So I think we acquired nine properties a couple of months ago. So we're, we're definitely positioned to be able to do that. It's just to do that consistently over a year. That's really the challenge, right? So um, yes, we want, we want to, and uh, I think, um, I think we'll hit it, but or even if we fall short of it, it'll still be a great accomplishment. Um, and but for the future, I mean, I, I want to kind of keep going uh, within the real estate space in general, as opposed to just flipping. Uh, the flipping team, I think, like I said, we can we can add uh, maybe a couple of different components to it. Maybe some more junior acquisitions, some junior uh, design uh, assistance, things like that. But for the most part, I think we're pretty well positioned to be able to to hit some pretty good goals. I think the uh, the growth there is going to be more geographically oriented. Is how can I tap into some some different markets, whether it's uh, stateside, whether it's you know different provinces. Um, so we are looking at some opportunities in, in a couple of different geographic markets to to grow and um, you know 
obviously there's a lot of room to still grow within Ontario and we want to keep doing that. Um, and I think that number of 100 will increase uh, as well if we do tap into some different geographic markets. Have you seen, um, you know, I, I imagine you work with a lot of wholesalers and different people that are finding off-market deals. Uh, have you seen that space change like in the last couple of years? Or, you know, for, from my perspective, it's, it's, it, there's a whole bunch of people that know about this now where it was a little bit more under the radar previous years. You know, has that got harder or more difficult? To, is there more competition, I guess, for those types of deals? Or what's, what's that look like? And um, how, many, like, how many of those people are out there that you work with? Oh man, there's, there's, there's a lot and it's growing. I mean, uh, everybody and their, you know, brother or mother wants to be a wholesaler nowadays. Right. So, um, I think it's great. I, I think, uh, you know, as the off market industry grows, there is a lot more opportunity for people that are willing to take it the extra mile and actually close and do the deal. Right. So, um, I don't see it as a, as a negative thing. I see it as, you know, something that's healthy. Um, obviously our cost of acquisition, when uh, our cost of market or cost of acquisition when it comes to properties that we're getting directly from sellers has increased dramatically. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, you could spend a few hundred bucks and you'll get a deal. Now you got to spend a few thousand at least. Um, so, you know, that's gone up, but, you know, so has the market. So I think with the new level of prices, with the amount of uh, potential profit that you can make, again, we can, we can work something like this into the deals where if I'm now buying more from wholesalers, um, it just has to be at a certain price. So if I have, let's say, you know, five deals that would have came to me last, you know, a year and a half, two years ago from wholesalers, I would have bought maybe one, two, maybe even three of them. You know, they were pretty good deals. Now I have to go through maybe 20 deals from wholesalers to do one or, you know, just those numbers will change, but so will deal flow. I'll get four times as many deals, but I'm four times less likely to do one of those deals because you know, quite frankly, I mean, a lot of the wholesalers that we work with are great, uh, but you do get a lot of deals, um, not to knock anyone, but you get a lot of people pitching you deals that aren't really deals, right? Yeah. Uh, so you have to spend a lot more time on analysis and uh, but potentially, you know, if it works out and, and you you keep pushing and, and doing your, your due diligence and keep looking at as many deals as you can, you can still potentially get a lot of deals from from wholesalers. Makes sense. Yeah, you just got to do a little more due diligence and um, there's a lot more to look through, I guess, now. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that's cool. I think, uh, you know, there's that, that business is definitely growing. It's a, it's all, I agree, it's a good thing. You know, it just creates more opportunities. Um, and yeah, there's there's 20 of them instead of five to look through at any given moment, which is which is cool. Maybe makes a little more work for, for you or for everyone. But uh, yeah. Well, the other thing I really cool. like to see as well is, uh, you know, when we started, uh, off, we've, we've seen a couple of the bigger wholesalers now that, you know, they were just getting into it or they had a few deals and you could tell that they were building momentum. And I think one thing that's really great as well is to see those people really evolve and you could see how many deals they're doing and they're doing really well. And that, you know, makes me uh, warm and fuzzy inside. So I like seeing that, um, you know, and, and it happened kind of right before our eyes type of thing. Right. So that, that's that's a great part of being in this industry at this stage as well. What else? What else, Will? Well, I was just going to ask you, you know, maybe a couple of things. Like, let's try and get um, sort of an overview of what kind of advice you would give to somebody who did want to start out doing what you're doing. Like, what, what, what are the big things that they should do? Nike says it best. I mean, just do it. I mean, really, uh, 
there's a lot of different um, things you can do. It's it's find your niche. You know, I, I'd say find that one deal that makes sense for you, and and you know, don't talk yourself out of it. Just just obviously do your homework, do your due diligence, uh, but but just do it. You know, you you the the best lessons or the best um, you know. The solid foundation was really built off of actually being in the trenches and doing these deals. It didn't really come from, you know, hearing somebody on a podcast or reading about it in a book or something like that. If, if you are under contract to buy something, you've, you're going to know what those numbers are. You know, you don't need to really sit there and figure out how do I crunch numbers when there's real deals in front of you that you can crunch numbers on and take it forward from there. Right. So um, I would say, you know, the best piece of advice is, you know, learn from doing and 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 don't be don't be really afraid, right? Um, obviously, do all your due diligence, uh, but that and capitalize on the resources that are in front of you. A lot of people have that limiting belief that, you know, I've got twenty grand of capital, so I can't do a deal. You know, it doesn't really require capital. Um, and I got that a lot when I was starting off, and I, I was doing a lot of flips. I would talk to people that wanted to do it, and they knew I was a successful realtor, and they said, "Oh, you know, it's because you have the capital." And I was like, you know, that capital was gone on like the first two or three properties. After that, you've got to you've got to make it work. You know, you've got to raise capital. You've got to. But if I didn't have it right from the beginning, I still would be able to do the volume that I'm doing now. It, it wasn't capital. That's that's not what it takes. Um, and so I, I'd say, don't be you know limited. Don't limit yourself based on what you think to be true. I love that. What's what 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 is uh, one or a few ways that people can go about finding that capital. You know, I agree. It's not, it is out there. It's just, how do you go about doing it? I think a lot of people are just have that roadblock in their mind of, I don't know where to go, what to, to talk to, what, what are some avenues they can go to find that capital? I'd say focus, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can do. You can take really nice pictures. You can make a nice presentation. You can talk to people. You can do it on the phone. You can write nice emails. If I was directing people to one thing that you can do to raise that capital is open up Excel. Just create an Excel spreadsheet and just put everything in there in terms of what that deal has to offer and send that to someone. You can literally send somebody an email with an Excel spreadsheet attachment with zero write-up and it's self-explanatory. That person, that might be just enough to get you what you need. And they would send yeah, it to, fine. they would send it to you, to me, to the to the yeah. world, uh, a, a friend who has some money. Who do if, they send it to? If, if you send it to one person, your chances of raising capital is low. If you send it to two, you just yeah. doubled your chances. If you send it to a hundred, you're you're getting there. But send it to as many people as you can. I mean, everybody yeah. like. It's kind of universal. Everybody has money, even if you think they don't. A lot of people have money or they have access to people who may want to invest or, or have money, right? Um, but again, the big key to what you said there is find the deal. Like, really, like that was that was the actual lesson that you're sharing there. Go find the deal, right? Yeah. Find the deal and the money will come. If you've got something good, people are going to want to be part of it. Yeah. So, uh, and, if, and if you yeah. really don't have that experience and you think you're going to be wrong, Unfortunately, you're going to miss out on a lot of deals, but tie it up conditionally. You know, uh, there's a lot of people out there who have done really good deals and it started off as a conditional deal. A lot of people have that limit that they think, oh, well, I can't do a deal because everybody wants a firm offer. I mean, it means you have to work maybe twice as hard to get that deal, but you could still do it. And once you have it conditional, open up Excel, make a spreadsheet and send it to as many people as you can. You know, the, if the numbers make sense, you'll, you'll raise the capital and you'll actually be doing the people that give you the capital a favor. 
you know, that's another limiting belief. A lot of people believe that, hey, you know, if this person lends me the money to do this deal, they're doing me a favor. It's not the case. There's people out there that are looking for deals, uh, you know, more, more, more than people that are looking for money. So you're actually doing them a favor um, but by sending them that spreadsheet. Yeah, that's a big mindset shift for a lot of people, but it's totally, totally true. Well, uh, Amar, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that, uh, that there might be a few people listening that want to make 20% on their money uh, lending with you. So how, how would those people get in touch with you? Um, well, they can, uh, if they Google my name, they'll, they'll probably find me. It's pretty easy to find people nowadays uh, on Facebook, Amar Beg. Uh, my name is right there on the screen as well. So A-M-M-A-R, last name is Beg, B-E-G. Uh, amar.beg on Instagram, uh, send me a direct message. My email is amar, that's A-M-M-A-R, at canadafastoffer.com. Uh, so email, text, uh, you know, social media, however they want to reach me. Uh, I am looking to build uh, the team constantly as well. Right now we are looking for, as I mentioned, some assistance on the design team. We're looking for an investment analyst to help us analyze deals a lot faster. Uh, we're looking to maybe even grow our acquisition team a little bit. Um, anybody who thinks that uh, anybody who has a passion for real estate and thinks that they could be a good part of the team, uh, we, we'd love to bring them on and work with them. That's awesome. awesome. I know, you, I know you got some, yeah, I know there's some people out there that might be interested in that because it sounds like a great kind of mentorship sort of opportunity. Yeah. yeah and I, if you I, didn't I, catch that, guys, it's going to be, sorry, all of MR's uh, info is going to be in the show notes there. So just click on over and you'll be able to uh, get in touch with them very, very easily from there. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, that's that's it. Uh, I was just uh, saying that. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know the people that listen to these types of podcasts. I think I think those are the people that, that we want to work with. You know, they're they're interested. There's nothing forcing people to listen, and I think uh, knowledge is key. So anyone who's listening to podcasts like these, I've listened to a lot of your episodes, and there's just a wealth of information on here. And uh, if you're someone who listens to these podcasts and loves the information that's provided here, um, those are the type of people that we want to work with. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for joining us here today, uh, taking the time away from the beach and the family and all that stuff. Five kids. We didn't really touch on that either. Man, <laughs> that's got to be a handful. Yeah. It's definitely a handful. Kids are two, four, six, eight, and 10. So they're all very young, but you know, it gets easier as they grow older, I guess. And slowly, hopefully soon they'll be taking care of me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. All right, man. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, you know, get back to vacationing. And uh, Sandy, how can people get in touch with you? Sandy at McKayRealtyNetwork.com uh, or 289-389-6846. And you can reach me at rob at mrbreakthrough.ca. Thanks for joining us, guys. We will see you next time.